Take your Bibles. We'll turn to Exodus chapter 36 this morning. I suspect somebody walked in this morning and said, oh my, he's going to cover five chapters. Uh, We'll probably be here until dinner time. We took a quick excursus last week and landed in the Gospel of John where we studied the resurrection. And in the resurrection, we saw that Jesus Christ reigns and rules and that how his people were met by the risen Christ. We've got two more sermons in what has really been a fantastic study in the book of Exodus. We've got this week and next week. Now, every preacher who would ever come to the book of Exodus would come to this section of Exodus and recognize that he probably should have made a decision a long time ago to cover the tabernacle before we got to this place. That's why we did what we did. We covered the elements of the tabernacle back in chapters 25 through 31. Uh, So this time when we encounter it, in order to be faithful to the text, what we need to do is actually lift the camera lens and look at the higher level of this closing section in order to capture the real meaning of the passage. And that's what we're going to do here today. We'll begin at Exodus chapter 36. And if you follow along in your Bible, we'll touch on various sections all the way through the ending portion of John, of, uh, not of John, that'd be a real long day, of the end of chapter 40. Beginning at chapter 36, verse 8. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. And then there's a description which follows of the construction of the tabernacle. Chapter 37, verse 1. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. And then you skip down after the explanation of how that ark was made, to verse 10. He also made the table of acacia wood. Skipping down to verse 17. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. And then the explanation of the lampstand, we move to verse 25 in chapter 37. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Then you go to chapter 38, verse 1. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. And then you go down to verse 8. He made the bronze basin and its stand of bronze. Verse 9. He made the court. And then you go ahead after the explanation of the making of the court. There's various materials that are used in that. And then the last thing that he teaches us about is the priestly garments, verse 1 of chapter 39. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then that explanation of each of these garments takes us to verse 32. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded. And then after that, the the tabernacle is actually erected. So verses 1 through 8, the Lord tells him how to erect it. Verses 9 through uh, 33, there is the actual erecting of it. But I want to draw your attention to verse 16. This Moses did, thus Moses, excuse me, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. Verse 33, 
And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. So this is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, we read a portion of your scripture which is a repetition of something which has already been said. And so we pray now that your spirit would help us to see what is here so that we might bring comfort and peace from this text of scripture even as you point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us ears to hear. And we also pray that you would use a sinful crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus. We need your help, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. It wasn't originally written as a Christmas carol, but that's the way you think of it today. In fact, if you heard this hymn sung any time between 1719 and 1839, you wouldn't even recognize the tune at all. Because the tune that you and I think of was not added until 120 years after the lyrics was, were written. But now it's one of the most popular hymns in the whole church. It's drawn from the themes of Psalm chapter 98. Isaac Watts composed this beautiful hymn which speaks about heaven and earth rejoicing at the coming of the king. But it wasn't intended to be a Christmas carol. That's why you have no mention of the virgin birth. That's why you have no mention of baby Jesus. Isaac Watts wrote the hymn, Joy to the World, with this view toward Christ, with a view toward the second coming, which is why the opening verse says this, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. That phrase, let every heart prepare him room, that's actually a very important way to look at this last chapters of the book of Exodus. God's people are making a physical and spiritual room for God to come and dwell in their midst. And remember, biblical priorities are underlined by biblical repetition. And so the coming of God to dwell with man is such an important theme in Exodus. It's such an important theme in the whole of the Bible that those with eyes to see can look at a passage like this and say, this is not rote, it is rich. The building project that God caused his people to complete here is not simply a a successful human endeavor It is empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's the gifting of the Holy Spirit that makes this happen in the lives of God's people. And the same is true for us, in fact. It would be a mistake for any of us to think that we grow in grace or we grow in holiness by our own efforts alone. As if I'm going to make myself more sanctified. But but likewise, it would also be a mistake to think that my growth will happen outside of me as if I had nothing to do with it at all. Christian, let's be really clear. You and I are not striving to build a spiritual house for the Lord, either within our hearts or up College Street in the forms of brick and mortar. The Bible actually says that you already are a spiritual house for the Lord. 
And so it is your privilege then to join in the building project that the Lord is doing. In fact, to watch and work as King Jesus refurnishes your heart and your life so that you become a suitable dwelling place for the Lord. God works by His Spirit in you. You must welcome the temple work of Christ. We're going to break down this huge section of Scripture with three points. The order, the elements, the purpose. Now, if you've read Exodus in the past, you've come to this portion of Scripture, you feel like somehow, I think I've read this before, it feels deliberately repetitious. Perhaps you've wondered, is there any purpose to the repetition? I remember teaching this portion of Scripture to a ladies' Bible study when I pastored in Mississippi, and I kept getting tongue-tied, repeating the phrase, fine twined linen. It's so easy to do because it's listed so many times. I say that because we all stumble here. Let's acknowledge the stumbling and recognize that there is something rich and beautiful here. In fact, even here, there's four individual listings of the tabernacle. The first time we encountered the tabernacle was back in chapter 25 through 31. And in that first list, you remember, God commands the instruction of the tabernacle. And there on Mount Sinai, God speaks to Moses and he gives him these detailed specifications of how each individual element is to be built. And it won't surprise you, of course, that on Mount Sinai, as God speaks to Moses, that's the place where all the doctrinal and theological weight of the passage is carried. So that we took the time to break down every single element. What does each thing symbolize? What is God communicating about his character? And that's actually the reason that in that section we we took such careful attention to examine each and every element. Which is why in the tabernacle there is nothing more pressing than the issue of atonement. The issue of blood sacrifice to pay for our sins, a substitute to die for the sins of the guilty. That's why the Ark of the Covenant back in chapter 25 is the very first thing that we come to. Because nothing is more theologically important than pointing to Christ. This lamb without blemish who is slain, whose blood is spilled on the true mercy seat of God. Even as it cries out, Lord, have mercy upon your people. The Lamb of God must die in your place. And then the second time that we encounter this list, an order of the building is in chapters 36 through 39. And truthfully, that list reads much more like building plans. In what order would a skilled craftsman build these pieces of furniture? Well, that's exactly what Bezalel and Oholiab did. They constructed the tent That's why that comes first. And then where would you put the furnishings? Chapter 36, details, which is why it says, He made, He made, He made. It repeats that phrase. The third list, chapter 40, verses 1 through 16. This time the items are already built. But the Lord instructs Moses in how he needs to erect the tabernacle itself. And he repeats the phrase, you shall, you shall, you shall. So that everything from erecting the tabernacle to anointing the priests, again, it's just an explanation of a plan. 
And then the fourth and final list goes from chapter 40, verse 17, all the way down through verse 33. That is Moses and his team put together the tabernacle, and it gives us a sense of the completion of the project. And Moses erected, and he spread, and he took, and he brought, and he put, and he arranged. Why? To make sure that the reader who is reading knows that this thing was manufactured and erected and furnished in the precise way that God prescribes. And you and I stand coolly back 3,400 years later and we go, this is so dull. Why in the world is this on the pages of Scripture? Lift the plane and you will see why it matters. Do you remember where these people were when God gave the Ten Commandments? And the people at the base of the mountain trembled and shook. Exodus 20 verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, you speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. There was terror on Mount Sinai over the voice of God speaking and they weren't even that close. And that was before the golden calf. Oh, what would happen if you were to say, yes, Lord, come down, dwell in our midst. But we're not going to take the care to do it the way you tell us to do it. You see, this text is telling us, here's a God which is not to be trifled with. And so if he tells his people he wants to come and dwell in your midst, then, then he says to them also, you would be wise to be careful and to prepare room for me. It's actually wondrous. It's profound and sobering. God invites them to join in a spiritual project, to watch and to work as the Lord refurnishes your heart and your life into a suitable dwelling for himself. That's why I say You must welcome the temple work of Christ. That's the order. And now we move to the elements. This is really our opportunity to look back and review the furnishings and their application. You'll notice, of course, this time the order is different. In this case, at chapter 36, verse 8, he begins by explaining the tent. It says, all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. When we studied chapter 26, all the images of the tabernacle reminded us that God desires to dwell with his people. In fact, it's been his intention to dwell with his people from the very beginning. So when I preached that particular sermon, I called it four tabernacles. And we traced those tabernacles from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And it started in the Garden of Eden. That's the last time that God dwelt with his people, where God was walking with his people in the garden. And that Exodus generation is the first ones who read about the fall of mankind. They read about Adam's banishment from the Garden of Eden. They actually read about the cherubs who were there guarding the way into the Garden of Eden. And so the tabernacle, as it's being made, teaches God's glory and God's authority and God's holiness. That's why there's cherubs on curtains and images like this. But you remember also that that tent teaches in a very profound way that there is only one point of entrance. 
There is only one way to access this holy God. And then the next time after the building of the tabernacle that we see another tabernacle in the Bible, it's John chapter 1 verse 14 where John tells us that the Word of God took on flesh and blood and He, the Word, tabernacled. He pitched His tent among humanity in the body of Christ. And it's his life that is perfect and his obedience, which is faithful, that pays for the sins of God's people. And his resurrection on the third day is the thing which makes it possible for God to come and dwell among man. Which is why Revelation 21 verse 3, this same John can say with confidence, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, the culmination of the whole story is to take this tabernacle And to tell us there's a day coming when he really will dwell again with his people. It's a living illustration of the fact that this unchanging God never changed his course. He intended to dwell with his people. And neither Satan in the garden, nor sin in their lives, nor suffering can change the fact. Which is why the tabernacle 3,400 years ago still preaches a message to us today. The next element we encounter is this ark. Bezalel made the ark, chapter 37, 1. It's a box, ornately made of gold. It sits on legs with feet so it never touches the ground. It has rings on the side so that no one ever touches it as these poles are inserted into it. And all of this is meant to communicate God's holiness. But you'll remember, don't you, that the Ten Commandments inside is where those Ten Commandments sit. And the lid is placed on top of the box. And that lid has two cherubs which are leaning their heads forward and their wings are spread. And they they virtually touch in the middle. So while God's law is placed on the inside, this lid in Hebrew is placed on top. And the word for that lid is kaporet, which means to make atonement. This is the spot where the high priest is going to come and he's going to make atonement first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. In fact, atonement takes place at the ark. Martin Luther was the first one to translate that mercy seat. It's not a place to sit down. It's the spot of God's power and authority. Because the mercy seat is the picture of God's throne. It's the place from which God speaks. And it doesn't surprise you, does it, that His law is overlaid with His mercy. It's the place where atonement converges. Where holiness and mercy come together. So the gospel is actually preached in a loud and clear way. And of course, this physical ark is a picture of a heavenly reality. That is, when Christ came into the world, he carried forth God's law. And the Lord speaks to his people from a place of God's mercy, which overlays that law. Christ is the one who goes and makes atonement on the the real, true mercy seat. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus entered into the most holy place on that true seat, and he spilled his own blood, not to pay for his own sins, but to pay for yours. In fact, you and I are here today because he's met, Jesus has met God in a way that Moses 
never could. The third element, he also made the table. He overlaid it with pure gold. That's verse 3710. This is one of the three furnishings that's inside the holy place. Twelve loaves of bread sit on this table to, to teach God's people that it is the Lord who constantly sustains and cares for His tribes. So the bread is going to be brought in by the priest on a daily basis. God doesn't need to eat bread. But the table symbolizes that God is always aware of your daily need. If you are ever tempted to think or doubt God's provision, the table is going to stand in your midst and God sees what your needs are and they're already on His mind. And so even to you and I today, this table from so long ago preaches that your needs are on God's mind, that He alone is really the source of your real spiritual nourishment. The table reminds you that God knows that the, way, the ways your heart hungers, that God is willing to meet your daily needs. Not only does God see your needs, He's actually the only one who's capable of meeting your needs perfectly. Which is, of course, why the table points to Jesus, who in John six thirty five says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. This fourth element in the tabernacle is the lampstand. Chapter 37, verse 17. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. And you remember, don't you, that the tabernacle is covered with four layers spread over the poles because the tabernacle inside is pitch dark. And so this lamp has a functional purpose. It it lights the holy place. But not only is it functional, it's also beautiful. It's modeled to look like a flowering almond tree. And all of these images are pointing back to the Garden of Eden, the place where God said, let there be light. The place where God created life in the human form. And the lampstand reminds the Hebrew worshipers that God is is alone is the source of life and light. And that's a theme that keeps carrying through the Bible. Not only does light shine into your heart, light is what overcomes the darkness of your sins. That's actually what the Lord found when He drew near to you. John chapter 8, Jesus cries out, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so this golden lampstand preaches a message to them and also to us. God intends to dwell with His people. And yet, when he draws near to them, he finds so much darkness in the soul that he must send forth his Spirit to turn on the light. So that having been drawn out of darkness, you and I might, by light, grab hold of the Christ. The next furnishing is this altar of incense. Chapter 37, verse 25, he made the altar of incense. It, too, is overlaid with gold. Do you remember, of course... There's two rooms in the tabernacle. There's the most holy place and the holy place. And in between the two, there is a four-inch thick curtain which divides the most holy place from the holy place. And yet, this is the piece of furniture that sits in closest proximity to the ark on the other side of the curtain. 
And so as the priest comes and he burns incense, it's a constant picture of the prayers of God's people going up to the Lord. Psalm 141, David uses that language. Revelation 4 pictures the same thing. That is that incense is, a, is an image or picture of prayers going up to the Lord. But you wonder, don't you, why in the world is this thing called an altar if nothing really dies on it? Well, it's called an altar because Aaron is going to have to come and wipe blood on the thing once a year. Why? To remind them and us that our sin is so severe That our sins make it impossible for even our prayers to be welcomed before the Lord without the payment of a sacrifice. And so it's pointing to a better sacrifice. A lamb who is slain to take away your sins so that your prayers are sprinkled with the blood of Christ even as they go to the presence of God so that He hears you through that precious blood. Next two elements to be built are the burnt, the altar of burnt offering, and then, of course, the outer court itself. Exodus 38.1, he made the altar for burnt offering. Exodus 38.9, he made the court. This makes sense in a construction plan. The altar is outside in the courtyard. The courtyard teaches that God desires his people to come and worship. And yet, even as the courtyard preaches a kind of invitation, come, worship the Lord, the moment the Hebrew people entered into the courtyard, they are confronted with the problem of sin. There's a big, giant, grated altar burning with animal flesh. The whole picture is meant to lead them to the presence of God from far out in the courtyard all the way into the most holy place past blood and curtains and images. But you can't go. No, you cannot go any beyond the courtyard. Your high priest must go for you. Which is why the Bible says that in Christ we have a great high priest who is passed not through the courtyard not through the curtains, but through the heavenly curtains. Jesus, the Son of God, that's why we hold fast our confession, because our high priest has been tempted in every way that we were, yet he is without sin. And then the last thing that is mentioned is these priestly garments. Chapter 39, 1. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. You remember one stone on each shoulder of the priest. And the names of God's people, the tribes of Israel written on those stones. And the priest carries those names into the presence of God. And then I wonder if you remember the breast piece. And each stone with the name of one of the tribes of Israel. Of course, all of that is pointing to a better priest. Who carries God's people on his shoulders who carries God's people close to his heart and he walks into the very throne room of God and there those people are accepted and received because they are held close to the heart of the great high priest and it's not Aaron. It is Jesus. I'll point you back to the sermons of chapter 25 through 31 to get the full measure of what each description means. I'll tell you this. Bible repetition underlines Bible priority. This portion is written with so much care that you can tell that God's newly forgiven people are doing all this work 
because God is still willing to come and dwell in their midst. And so the lesson for them is the same lesson for us. If God is so willing to come and dwell with His people like them, you and I must prepare Him room. You must welcome the temple work of Christ. We've looked at the order of the elements. We're going to close with the purpose. I knew when we came to this portion of Exodus, we'd have to lift the plane up. I want you to recognize that's what we've done. And so here, as we fly at 30,000 feet, I want to ask you to look out the window and acknowledge the purpose. We did this so that we did not miss the whole. The book of Exodus began with an enslaved people under the reign of an evil king, and they groaned, and they cried out for help. And the Lord heard them, and He saw them, and He knew them. And He remembered His covenant with Abraham. This is the God who never wavered from His original purpose. I will be your God. I will bring you out of the land of Egypt. I will dwell with you. I will take you to the promised land. And the whole time, they have grumbled and complained and doubted and feared and flat out disobeyed. And God has consistently proven His steadfast love and faithfulness. Because the whole story of Exodus is meant to teach us about God's character. And in the midst of what you and I read as repetition and building plans, here's an application that is stated not with words, but with facts. It's a principle which is expressed on the mouth of the reluctant prophet Balaam. Numbers chapter 23, God is not man that he should lie Or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And the next time we hear that exact same concept is at the end of the Old Testament. After centuries of unfaithfulness, after centuries of rebellion and sin, through the mouth of the prophet Malachi, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You see, the tabernacle built comes after the tabernacle promised. And in between is Exodus 32, a complete adultery of the nation against her God. You see, they built this tabernacle, and as they did, they rejoiced. Yahweh never lies. He never changes His mind. He always fulfills the things that He's promised His unchangeable nature is the reason that He sent the Christ. And it's the reason that you don't have to worry whether or not God can actually overcome your problem with sin. His unchangeable nature is never a reason to presume upon His grace, but it's always an invitation for you and I to repent and come running. Because you can be certain of His grace. Second application Because of his unchanging nature, God says, I still desire to dwell with my people. And you get at the end of Exodus five chapters of of detail to tell the story of how God's people constructed the tent in obedience to God's commands so that he would come and in fact dwell in their midst. But God no longer draws near to you and to me in a tent, in a physical way. But those who trust in Christ as their Savior 
1 Corinthians 6, God draws near and he sends forth his spirit by pitching his tent in your heart. You see, given God's willingness to dwell within you, given his willingness to construct and furnish himself within your heart, what sort of dwelling place are you? Are you willing to cooperate with his spiritual work as he builds not the first tabernacle, but another tabernacle? There's no doubt that God's Spirit is the prevailing power at work that has made you a suitable dwelling place for God, and yet it really is the privilege of every single believer saved by grace to welcome the ongoing temple work of Christ. In other words, let every heart prepare Him room. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Spirit. We thank You that Christ now dwells in us, and we pray that You would teach us to furnish our lives and our hearts in such a way that we are constantly making room for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.